Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid. An honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. Here on Off the Grid, we cover not only ophthalmology-related topics, but personal topics as well. The idea is that we can often learn the most about the field through our conversations with one another. Oftentimes, these conversations happen not on the podium or on the stage, but in the hallways. As a fan of the podcast, I'm excited to be joining, for the first time, as Ophthalmology Off the Grid's new co-host. In this episode, we talk about music, a topic that is very personal to me. I'm joined by my colleagues, Dr. Nate Ratcliffe and Dr. Paul Singh. We discuss the prevalence of blind musicians and delve into the stories of some of our favorite blind artists. We also talk about our love for music and the important role it plays in each of our lives. Coming up on Off the Grid. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast produced by Bryn Mawr Communications and supported by advertising from Sun Ophthalmics. For a full list of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to itube.net forward slash podcasts. That's itube, E-Y-E, T-U-B-E dot net. Welcome to Ophthalmology Off the Grid. I am your new co-host, Blake Williamson, and I'm very, very excited to be joining my dear friend and colleague, Gary Wirtz, who's done such an amazing job with this podcast over the past couple of years. Um, this is something I've listened to as a, as a fan and uh, really am excited to join with him uh, and trying to continue to present really cool, relevant topics, not only um, scientific and, and technology-driven podcasts, but also um, personal podcasts as well, things about uh, that that you know affect affect us outside of ophthalmology. I'm excited to join on, and and for my first episode, I, I wanted to do something that was near and dear to my heart, and that is music. I've been a, a, a DJ for a couple of different uh, radio stations over the past several years, and you know outside of ophthalmology, um, music is is certainly my hobby, and um, one of the topics. Um, that's always interested me is just the prevalence of uh, blind musicians. Uh, there are so many uh, uh, musicians around the world who uh, were born blind or became blind, and many of them are, are people that are household names like Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder and others. And I wanted to kind of take a deep dive into sort of why that is and really introduce a, a few of these different artists and tell their stories. and. When thinking about what guests to have on for my very first show, it became pretty clear. Um, uh, I decided to that there are two people who I had to ask, uh, not only because they're great, you know, mentors and, and now friends to me, but also musicians themselves. And uh, uh, that's uh, Nate Ratcliffe and also uh, Paul Singh. How are you guys? Good, doing great, man. How you doing? Doing well. Nate, you doing well? Yes, I am. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I agree. Gary's done a great job, but. Uh, of course, everyone has high hopes for you, Blake. <laughs> so I met I met Paul, um, gosh, probably five or six years ago. Um, I was still a resident, and I went to a, a, a technology and innovation summit for Bausch and Lomb, I think, in Chicago, and was uh, was just totally struck uh, by his approach um, and and how he took care of patients. But 
Um, afterwards, obviously, uh, got a chance to talk to him socially and was not surprised that we had many of the same interests and in music being the main one. And same thing with Nate. Nate, I met you um, at, at uh, Millennial Line Nashville a couple years ago, and you had your guitar and cowboy hat, and I knew that we were going to be fast friends as well. Um, so, so, Nate, I, I thought that maybe um, I, I would start with you. Um, so, you know, the, really the first question that, that I have is, why do you think there are so many blind musicians versus other mediums in art? I mean, if you think about the traditional mediums in art, you have classically there are seven. There's architecture, sculpture, painting, literature, music, performing arts, and film. But it seems like we hear the most about musicians. Yeah, you know, so it's, uh, it, it's an interesting thing. Um, and there's actually been some good research on this topic, uh, interestingly. So, you know, there's tremendous neuroplasticity in the uh, cerebral cortex. Um, and, you know, w- what we've seen is that, you know, if there's a certain part of your brain uh, that isn't being used for vision, uh, you'll find a use for it. So two-thirds of the cortex in, in some way deals with vision or vision processing, object processing. And uh, I think that uh, you've got a lot of real estate up there. Uh, to put towards some other effort uh, if you don't have uh, sight. Some of the musicians that I'll talk about uh, were blind from an early age. I think the plasticity can occur at any point in life. For example, uh, if you yourself were blindfolded for a few months, uh, they've done this with fMRI, you'd start using Cortex for other activities. Um, so I don't think there's a date at which it's, you're too late, but there's probably better plasticity if uh, you never have vision and are able to immediately dedicate uh, your brain to other tasks. And I, I like to think that's what's happening with musicians. It certainly sounds like it. What do you think, Paul? I always agree with Nate. That was a good, <laughs> was a good start. <laughs> yeah, man, I totally agree. I, mean, I think it's it's pretty uh, interesting to see that, you know, look at all the data and research. It's kind of fun. I was actually looking up some stuff a while ago about why, you know, why are, are blind uh, people so much, I guess, more adapt to music. And um, you know, the neuroplasticity is, a, is, is a probably a key issue. And I think, you know, you, you look at some of the MRIs and, and some of the studies that show like, you know, blind children are like 4,000 times more likely to have perfect pitch than, than the average uh, average person out there. And, you know, when you lose your you know, visual cortex or stimuli in the visual cortex, you actually see enhancements, you know, on scans, et cetera, uh, in the auditory cortex. So there's no doubt your brain is just saying, hey, man, I got all this real estate, like what Nate was saying, I got to use it up somehow. And so all the senses, especially the auditory sense, for some reason, takes over where the information for the visual cortex was. So it's just cool to see from a neuro perspective and scientific perspective that there's, there's, there's reasons for why we see what we see, you know, just by all the social uh, media you see and all the uh, musicians in history who have been incredible musicians who are blind. So the earlier, though, you do see the earlier that people do lose vision, uh, the, the more uh, uh, more innate it seems like they are able to adapt and the more the musicianship skills come to them versus having to learn it. Uh, but there's no doubt at any age, your ner- your senses will take over. And I think, I think the auditory cortex and the, in the sense of hearing is probably one of the most, uh, I think, impactful senses to take over when the vision's gone. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting, all those FFMRI studies. There's, there's a lot of stuff from the University of Melbourne, a lot of research uh, about this exact topic. And there's a couple of different authorities on, on the topic. One of them is Professor Adam Oakleford. There was a cool uh, article in The Guardian uh, about his research. And Essentially, he was he was at the Institute of Education in London, and you mentioned the, the perfect pitch, and and that's traditionally a, 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 a marker of exceptional musical ability. So people who are born with perfect pitch, like Stevie Wonder, um, are 
far more likely to develop further, uh, not only in singing, but just musically. And the other thing that he pointed out, or his research has pointed out over time, is um, just the simple idea that blind children just flatly demonstrate much more interest in everyday sounds, right? The thought is that it's just a very important um, source of comfort for them, you know? So, um, you know, and, and, and young kids, their, their brain is quite moldable and, and, and being able to, to use sounds in place of sight is important uh, for comfort, but also fu- for functionality too. If you think about tapping, you know, the cane on, on, on the ground and, and using echoes and things like that for spatial uh, recognition, um, it's just, it's really a part of, uh, of, of life for them. And I think that it's, uh, it's uh, obviously beneficial, you know, uh, in terms of, of their musical abilities. So, so Nate, I'm just curious, you, you, you're obviously a very, very busy um, glaucoma doctor up in New York. You probably have a lot of patients with low vision. Do you have any that, that play music or have you yourself ever attended a concert by like a blind musician? And what were your experiences from that? Yeah, you know, I um, is sort of an interesting topic. Uh, we were sort of talking about those who lose vision um, at an early age, but of course, I don't see those patients. Uh, as you know, uh, patients who've lost their vision many years ago, maybe have tysis in both eyes, you know, don't come to the ophthalmologist that frequently. Uh, so in my glaucoma practice, I have sighted musicians uh, who are reading music um, and who uh, are going blind typically from glaucoma. Um, so it's, it is a different struggle. Uh, you know, I practice in New York city in Manhattan. I have patients from Harlem, um, and, uh, in the Bronx as well. And, uh, I, I have a tremendous number of sighted musicians, uh, but working musicians who are reading music. I, I will tell you, it's amazing to me, uh, how some musicians can get by with a very small central Island, uh, even when they read, uh, music. I had a, a pretty famous conductor who is monocular. <laughs> and, you know, if you think about what a conductor is doing, looking out into the orchestra, uh, somehow this, this uh, wonderful uh, conductor was doing this with, uh, you know, about a four degree field in one eye. Uh, so I've been impressed with the resilience of some of the musicians, but obviously uh, they're, as is everyone, uh, you know, terrified of uh, losing what little vision they have. Yeah, it's amazing what they could do, um, hanging on to just what little bit of vision they have. And and what about uh, what about you, Paul? I mean, you're 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 actually a touring musician. We're going to talk about sort of your path with that sort of at the end of the podcast. But have you seen any blind performers? And what was that like for you? Yeah, no, I remember actually really in college when I was at WashU in St. Louis, and there was a concert from a a blind pianist, and oh my god, you know, it was incredible. And what what it struck me. I think more than anything else was not how good he, I mean, the good guy was incredible. I mean, he had great chops, no doubt about it. But when you just saw him play, it was almost like he was seeing the music uh, in in the in the space. And, and he was he was not confined to visually looking ahead at the piano or looking at sheet music or looking down at his hands and how he's playing. It was almost like, and it's going to sound strange, of course, but it was almost like he was free to play without the constraints of what we normally typical think of as a piano player who's looking at the audience or looking right at the piano. He was is feeling the music. And so every time he'd play at a different note or a different phrase or chord structure, you'd see him and his body move in a different way that I'd never seen before. You know, And it was like he was able to actually express his feelings and express the music in ways that we or me, I could never express no matter how much I jam on stage and I love jamming. It, it just was a great feeling. I think part of it was because, and, and he, he kind of gave an interview afterwards. It was, it was actually part of a music class 
And he gave an interview after, and he was saying how he can see the music when he plays it. Like in his brain, he's seeing seeing colors, he's seeing different uh, shapes and, and different, almost like a kaleidoscope in his mind, and, and what he thinks are colors at least. And it was just really cool to, to kind of see that expression in a different way that I don't think any one of us could really truly understand or even express ourselves if we tried. So it was just really cool to see that. Um, and, you know, personal experience just from home, you know, by one of my, in my uh, clinic, there was a patient of our, it was really kind of a sad story, but I had one of my patients who um, went by from ROP in one eye and was not seeing very well in the other eye, but had some vision. Well, when I came in 2004, I came out of fellowship and one of my first trauma cases was this, this kid's other eye, her other eye that was not that was seeing but not great and she lost that eye so she basically went blind at the age of three and i saw her about two years ago she's actually you know again doesn't come very often just to check and see how things are going and it was great because she was really heavily involved with music and it was hard for her for a while and her mom said that it was the music that kept her her daughter going uh and it was one of those things because her mom worked at walmart and would say she you know buy her some equipment and she could afford it and then she started playing piano and guitar and now she's in music class and she's after school music is what's keeping her going so it's just it's great to see how music can be therapeutic it can be a way for people to get by we always talk about that but even this child it was great to see that she was doing well and music was helping her get by with the, with the constraints and the difficulties she had with losing her vision so a uh, really interesting experiences for me yeah that's 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 really cool um and, and it's it's also one thing that you touched on just the expressive nature of music and i think that's why it's it's the one that 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 you know a blind artists take to the most of all out of all the different you know mediums and art is because music is by far the most expressive right nothing can make you feel a certain way more so than a piece of music, at least not me. And I bet it's the same for you guys. And to that end, um, I thought what would be really cool and uh, to the fun part of, of this podcast is, you know, if you guys could sort of introduce one or two artists that are amongst your favorite, you know, um, you know, we think of like Ray Charles when we think of blind musicians, but there's been so many, some obscure, some not so obscure. Um, and I thought that perhaps, uh, Nate, if you want to go first, just, uh, uh, talk to us about uh, a musician or two that, that you're a big fan of, and, and maybe even we could uh, hear you play a number by them. Sure, Blake. Uh, so, I, uh, so I'm a guitar player, and uh, after college, uh, when my, the glory days of being in a college band ended, uh, I got into bluegrass guitar playing. And uh, one of the most uh, amazing bluegrass flat pickers uh, is uh, a guitar player and singer named Doc Watson. Uh, he was uh, he, he passed away in 2012 at, at the age uh, about 90. Uh, he was born in 1923, and uh, a phenomenal guitar player. Um, not so much um, someone who was writing a tremendous amount of music, but someone who put his touch and his particular style to uh, to really whatever he played. Now he was blind uh, from birth. He went to the uh, North Carolina School for the Blind growing up. Uh, he has a great quote that I thought kind of tied into our conversation earlier. Uh, he said, uh, I would think learning to play the guitar would be very confusing for sighted people. Uh, and, and what's interesting, <laughs> yeah, it's great. What's interesting, though, is he taught his son to play Merle Watson. And there's a famous bluegrass festival now, Merle Fest, because unfortunately his, uh, his son did uh, die tragically in an accident. Um, so... Um, you know, Doc Watson's a great player. I'll, I'll play you a song of his. Uh, this is called Salt Creek, and it's just kind of a classic uh, flat picking song. Um, and uh, here's how it goes. Mm -hmm. 
That's amazing. That is epic. <laughs> that was awesome. I, w- I wish the podcast can pick up like uh, 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 clapping <laughs> and applause. That was really amazing. It's awesome, Nate. Well, thank you. Um, I'll move on. Shall I move on to my second musician here, uh, Blake? Yeah, tell us about uh, who else you picked. Uh, someone with a di- little bit of a different style, I'm, t- uh, I'm thinking, right? Different style, different genre. Um, I hope that we have all had the pleasure of... Uh, maybe in eighth grade slow dancing to uh, this uh, guitar player and singer. Uh, his name is Jeff Healy. And uh, Jeff Healy is, uh, has, you know, he's a guitar player, Canadian guitar player, uh, actually had a retinoblastoma. So he was bilaterally blind, uh, I believe enucleated from birth. Uh, and unfortunately for him, um, like some with retinoblastoma, he also developed a sarcoma and, uh, passed away from that uh, at uh, about, I think, age 41. Uh, so uh, before his, his time, um, he had a couple of different hits. He was notably in the movie Roadhouse as the guitar player in the house band at the bar where uh, Patrick Swayze and everybody had, uh, had all their hijinks. Um, was that the double deuce? <laughs> you know, I mean, if anyone is going to know the actual name of the bar, Blake, I know it's you. <laughs> So, yes. Yeah, so, so he was in that movie, but interestingly, uh, he wasn't on the soundtrack to the movie, um, but, but he had a couple of hits. And uh, I'll just remind you uh, of one of them here. Of course, you'll forgive me for singing on this, but otherwise, I don't think it'd be that interesting. <laughs> okay, you ready? Well, girl, you're looking mighty fine tonight and every guy has got you in his sights what you're doing with a clown like me is surely one of life's mysteries so tonight I Stars above. How did I ever win your love? What did I do? What did I say to turn your into eyes my way? There you go. Woo! <laughs> All right. That was amazing. That was awesome, Nate. You rocked it, buddy. He uh, he didn't shy away from uh, singing about eyes or you know make, making sort of vision puns. Uh, if you look through his life's quotes, it was something he embraced. He even I think um, he even like did a public service uh, "Don't Drink and Drive" uh, commercial where he said, you know, I don't drink and drive. And of course, 
he probably isn't driving because he's not sighted, but uh, you know, he, <laughs> to, uh, he was a character and uh, made some great music. That was that was that was fantastic, Nate. Nate once made me sing a Garth Brooks song uh, from the stage at Millennial Eye, um, and I, I don't sing. And and I, whenever he was calling me, he said, "Hey, man, uh, we're thinking about doing this, uh, uh, but it would require you to sing. Do you sing?" And I said, "No, I don't sing." He said, "Perfect." <laughs> so it wasn't quite as good as that. That was amazing. You know, never let a lack of ability stop you from doing something. Totally. Yeah. What about you, Paul? So tell us about what musician you picked. So I'm going to be so not original right now. <laughs> I'm going to pick, but you know, I'm going to pick a guy that just still is still uh, is one of my heroes and someone who I, I draw a lot of uh, a lot of support from uh, from a musical perspective. That's Stevie Wonder. The guy is just incredible. Um, you know, I've, a lot of people know about him, but if you really start to to really you know research him and, and understand his life. It's pretty incredible uh, what this guy has done uh, on so many fronts. And, you know, we, we all know that he's in a lot of his, his famous songs, and I'll play one of them, which I'm not going to try to play live because <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to do it justice like Nate did. But, um, but it, what's really cool about Stevie is is that his his musicianship is not just you know writing music; it's singing, it's playing piano, it's guitar, it's keyboards, uh, percussion. I mean, he writes and records. And what's really cool is you know I'm a musician, but I'm also a producer. I love producing music and writing music and in studio. And, and, and in the studio, Stevie, he hears the whole orchestra in his mind. So he can he can seriously lay down every track and understand where each track goes, like the horn section for you know, superstition. He hears that horn section in his mind and just, bam, lays it down. So what I love about his mind is that he hears the whole production in his mind. But what's really cool, I mean, he lost, unfortunately, he lost his vision early on too, you know, from ROP. Um, but, you know, he, since he was a kid, he had, you know, famous... He made it big when he was even like 13 with his song Fingertips. And then Motown picked him up and he, he got in the right circles and started you know, developing his own sound. But what's really cool is that he actually, you know, for a lot of his years, his main formative years of writing music, wrote music without having any sense of also taste and smell. So back in 1972, he actually had a car accident and he had a co he was in a coma. And when he came out of a coma, he unfortunately lost his sense of taste and smell. So he had no vision, taste or smell. All he had was tactile and, 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 and his auditory senses. And he said that even after that, he was able to write his kind of his best music after that happened. So he wasn't distraught from that. He actually uses music to kind of get him out of that and really write some of his most famous songs that we hear today as well, uh, which is, I think is just really cool. And so for me, he's one of those guys that just, you know, it epitomizes, you know, a sense of strength, never giving up. Uh, and, and I love his songs. He's got so much soul and so much funk. And, and one of my favorite styles of music is funk. I'm in a, in a band, as you know, Funk and Daisy. We try to mix funk and reggae and hip hop. And, and some of our influences come from what the stuff that Stevie's done and Motown has done early on. And so for me, it's just it's just great to hear his songs. And he, he's, he spans all the gamut from hip hop to straight up blues to, to jazz to funk. And, and I think for me, that's kind of what, what helps me when I write my songs. I think a lot of stuff that he does and Smokey Robinson, all those guys back in the Motown days. Uh, so that's kind of my, my guy <laughs> that, I, that I like to do. So I'll, I'll play a song real quick for you guys, just because you can't help but play a little superstition, man. So this is for this is uh this is for all you guys out there who love a little superstition. Here we go.
mean, you just can't help like want to jam to that song. <laughs> I mean, you, you hear that you're like, I want to play right now. I'm like, I want to, I want to get a gig right now and start jamming out. One of my first, one of my first songs I ever learned to play on the keyboard, the clavinet, was that lick from Superstition. And you just, it's not that hard to play, but when you just play it and you hit the the basic drum beat, that four four beat, you're just like, oh, oh, it's in the pocket. So anyway, I get so pumped with that. <laughs> so, so Stevie's one of my guys, but and for so many on so many levels, he's just an incredible musician, artist, and what's really cool is he's like. You know, this guy has like nine kids or seven kids. He had his first child back in the 75, I think, 76. And his last kid was back in 2014. <laughs> so he's, he's still pretty active too. I'm like, this guy's pretty cool. <laughs> he's a busy, he's a very busy man. If you can't tap your feet to, to, to superstition, something's wrong with you. Well, cool, man. So so the, the artist that I wanted to present is a little bit more obscure. Um, you know, the, the radio show that I do uh, here in Baton Rouge um, is traditional blues and traditional gospel and country music. I don't play anything after the year 1975, so I spent a lot of time listening to old stuff. And when I was in residency for ophthalmology at Tulane, um, I was on WWOZ, which is the local radio station in New Orleans, and I played pre-World War II jazz. So old music has always been a part of my life. And um, I did my undergrad in Oxford, Mississippi, so that's very near the Mississippi Delta and all my buddies at the time were always talking about like all these uh, Delta musicians and just the blues in general. So I got deep into blues. Um, and um, the artist that, that I wanted to introduce you guys to uh, is this guy called Blind Willie Johnson. He was born in uh, 1897 in Pendleton, Texas. And this, that's a small town near Waco. He's born to a sharecropper father. And his mom actually died when he was like four years old. So um, the, the, the Johnson family attended church each and every Sunday, and that's where you know, that sort of fueled his desire um, to not only be a gospel singer, but just a musician in general. And when he was age five, uh, his dad uh, gave uh, Willie his first uh, instrument, which is a cigar box guitar. He wasn't born blind. Actually, as the story goes, his dad remarried, and um, apparently um, his dad and his stepmom didn't get along too much. And there were some issues with infidelity with her and one time when they were having a big argument it kind of got physical and she accidentally splashed uh, Willie in the eye with a caustic solution of lye water so lye is like a metal hydroxide I think back then it was potassium hydroxide and they used it in the olden days for like pr food preservation and soap making and and stuff like that so he actually went blind um, from the age of, uh, of seven and few other details were really known about his life. At some point, um, he said to have met another uh, a blind musician in Texas named Madkin Butler. And there's a couple of blues anthologists. One of them's name is Samuel Charters, who used to interview people um, in the 50s and interviewed a couple of people who said they used to see Blind Willie Johnson you know, performing on street corners and stuff like that um, um, outside, outside of Waco. Um, he, uh, uh, again, his, his childhood is, you know, pretty murky, but, um, he started recording between the years of 1927 and 1930. He laid down 30 tracks, uh, in total. Um, and these were sort of considered his landmark recordings, which he did, uh, for Columbia records. Uh, he was actually found by uh, a talent scout in 27 and, uh, and brought down to uh, deep Ellum, um, uh, which is that uh, musical neighborhood in Dallas. And uh, he made many uh, of his uh, most well-known sort of blues uh, standards uh, there, including the song that we're going to hear tonight. And uh, his first um, his first album that came out really it had over, over ten thousand copies 
that were sold, which was huge uh, for that era. He would outlast it, or or he actually had more records sold uh, than than Bessie Smith, who was a huge artist uh, at that time. And uh, one of his last recordings, he only recorded four times. One of his last ones was in New Orleans in 1929. What's interesting there is he was actually arrested for inciting a riot um, on the streets there. Uh, he was playing on the street in front of um, in, in front of one of the big buildings on Canal Street, and I'm guessing he was disturbing this peace or something. But his last recordings were in Atlanta in April of 1930, and then the Depression hit, and that kind of wiped him out. So, you know, he didn't really perform after that. He moved back to Beaumont, Texas, and performed and preached in, in the church there until eventually dying of complications from, from malaria, fever, and syphilis in 1945. Um, so his musical style, you know, he's considered one of the masters of the blues and particularly the gospel blues. And, you know, what what he's really known for is that, you know, the slide guitar technique that he plays. So he's one of the first people to introduce uh, the slide guitar and he wouldn't use a, a bottleneck. He would actually use uh, like a steak knife. And this was a style that people like Robert Johnson and Howlin' Wolf and many others would go on to to emulate. And um uh, again, that blues anthologist Samuel Charters, um, you know, once said that he was not a bluesman in the traditional sense, but you know, there, there, but you know, still there was so much similarity between his relentless guitar rhythms and his harsh, insistent voice, and the same fierce intensities of the blues singers that they become images of each other, seen in mirror of the society that produced them. So, talking about kind of even though he's a gospel guy, you know, so much, so much blues uh, was wrapped up in that. So, the song that. Um, that I'm going to play is called uh, uh, Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground. Here it is. about that is um, even though that was recorded in 1927 uh, just how haunting that is uh, I don't know if that, that came through to you guys at all um, but just uh, almost kind of spooky of you know just the, the whole tone of that and what, what's really cool is the first time I ever heard of that I was actually in Spain going to see a White Stripes concert and I was reading one of the magazine articles uh, about the the festival I was going to and Jack White was quoted and basically, they were asking what his interpretation of like the original blues song is, and he's, he 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 mentioned that song. He was like, "There's not even any, any words. There's no there's no lyrics or anything. It's just him moaning along and playing slide guitar in like 1927." And to him, that's like the perfect representation of, of a blues song. And you know, the last thing that I'll say about that I thought was really cool is uh, it was actually uh, one of only three modern songs, including on included on the Voyager Golden Record. So in, 19, in 1977, Carl Sagan 
uh, who's a famous astronomer. He did like Cosmos and that old TV show back in the day. Um, he was tasked by NASA to, um, to, to basically make what they called a golden record. And they included 27 songs uh, from planet Earth. And they include everything from like, you know, field recordings of rainforests and whale sounds and stuff like that. There was, there was orchestras or, or symphonies from, from Bach and Stravinsky. Um, but there was only one blues record played. And it was that song that you just heard. So the three modern song was Johnny Be Good um, uh, by Chuck Berry. Um, and then a jazz song by Louis Armstrong and the song that you just heard. So I thought that was, that was really cool. Um, and, and that was the song that was chosen to sort of, you know, explain us to, to some extraterrestrial life form. And, and, uh, that, that Voyager record had a quote, uh, from Jimmy Carter, who was president at the time and said, uh, he said, this is a, should it ever be found? You know, it's basically like a time capsule. He said, this is a present from a small distant world, a token of our sounds, our science, our images, our music, our thoughts, and our feelings. We are attempting to survive our time so we may live into yours which I thought was really, really cool. So yeah. wanted to share that with you guys. You know, so, you know, the last thing I kind of wanted to talk about is just your experience as a musician. So, you know, Nate, we just heard you play. Paul, you kind of tour all around the place. Uh, you, you, you've played for many years. You, you've played all over the country. Um, just talk about, you know, being a musician yourself and an ophthalmologist, how you balance that, what kind of releases music for you, and, and, you know, what does it mean to you? Maybe, Nate, if you want to start first. Yeah, sure. So, uh... You know, I'd like to say I was probably a better guitar player when I was age 14. <laughs> so <laughs> I've been playing for a long time, um, but uh, it is it is more of a relaxation therapy for me now um, than anything else. Um, you know, in many ways, I'm fortunate that I wasn't a better guitar player when I was younger because uh, I think I'm happier as an ophthalmologist than I would be as a full-time musician, um, given that so many talented musicians you know, never, uh, never strike it rich and, and, you know, are never so famous, uh, as the ones, you know, we may see here, here on the radio, but it is a tremendous, uh, way to be social with friends. Um, I love getting together with friends and basically playing karaoke where I'm the karaoke machine, if I can do that. Um, <laughs> and I don't get to play as much as I like, but, uh, you know, as my kids get older, um, as life gets a little more calm, I don't have MCATs and OCAPs and all that to study for anymore. So I do find, uh, you know, maybe an hour a week or so to sit down and play some guitar. And uh, it's a great part of my life. And Paul, what about you, man? Yeah, I know you've, uh, you've been, you've been a, a musician, a, a producer and everything in between. So talk about music and, and uh, sort of how it fits into your life. Yeah, you know, music, if there's one word I can, I can say about music in my world, in my, my perspective is it's healing. Uh, it's a healing for for me personally. You know, I'm any kind of. You know, I remember in medical school when I would just be stressed out about anything. I just go out there and play the guitar and write a song. Or you know, when I joined the band, the band I, I joined is a group called Funkadesi. It's a mixture between Indian funk and reggae. But what makes it so special, and I think what what keeps me going with the band still, and you know, performing and recording and all that good stuff, is the fact that each one of these band members truly are healers in their own right. Uh, you know, we 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 span diversity from the sense of age, economic status, social, you know education, religion, you name it. And what, what, what at the, our motto is one family, many children, meaning, look, we, we're all different in so many ways, but there's still so much that binds us together. There's still, there's something that unifies us all. And music is one of those big, well, I think for us, a big unifier. And, and you can teach and educate and bridge gaps and break down defenses 
through the music. And, and that's kind of one of our goals. And every time we play, no matter how much fun we have on stage, we're entertaining and jamming and hanging out, there's a sense of trying to educate and trying to break barriers. And and for me, it's it's so it's been a way to kind of help me personally deal with patients better. I think being you know having different members of the band with so such different backgrounds forces you to be to have open mind to to allow others' ideas to come in and to help you know work together. And so going to, back to the office after like a, a gig, <laughs> it's kind of fun because I go back and I have that renewed sense of I want to I want to work with everybody and I, I want to listen to my patients better. And so for me, it's it's helped me be a better doctor. I think it's helped me have a better perspective on life. And at the end, like Nate said, sometimes just de-stress, you know, just to kind of go downstairs in my studio and just start writing a song because I'm annoyed about something. I'm like, all right, I got to write a song. My wife's like, "Uh, honey, can you please go downstairs to the studio now? (laughs) Because you're not, you're kind of angry right now. Go downstairs. (laughs) So it's been fun for me to have that outlet as well. But it's been, it's been truly a healing uh, medium for me in so many ways. Yeah, that's a, that's an amazing perspective, and, and 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 it's shared by 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 me as well. I mean, as a as a radio DJ, you know, uh, Wednesdays is, is my big cataract surgery day, and so that evening I have my show. So for me, it's kind of like an escape after all my surgeries are done, um, and I get a chance just to sit in my studio and broadcast, and we get streams from all over the place. And it also it helps me with patients, uh, just having to talk through and introduce all these different artists and and learn about different cultures, especially. From way back when, a lot of my patients are elderly, so this is like the music that they listen to growing up. So it helps me with patients, but also just helps me kind of tune out, you know, and recharge, um, which I think is so important uh, these days as as a as a busy surgeon. Well, guys, um, I, I want to thank you both for coming on. We've broken a lot of barriers today. This is the first time we've had two guests on simultaneously. I believe the first time music has been played, and certainly the first time that live music uh, has been performed on Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Um, I couldn't think of a cooler topic and two cooler people to 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 have on as my first guest for my my first show as co-host along with Gary. So uh, uh, thank you both so much. Thanks a lot, man. It's awesome. Thank you, Blake. It was a lot of fun. Thank you to our two guests for shedding some light on the stories of some very talented musicians and for sharing your own talents with us as well. For Paul, Nate, and myself, music is a big part of our lives. It offers us a release. It can heal and relieve stress. It's a way to bring family, friends, and colleagues together. Using our free time to focus on our love for music can help us gain perspective, relate to our patients, and even makes us better doctors. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Thanks for listening. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast produced by Bryn Mawr Communications and supported by advertising from Sun Ophthalmics. For a full list of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to itube.net forward slash podcasts. That's itube, E-Y-E-T-U-B-E dot net.